Hey everyone, it's Jonathan, and welcome back to the Disney Movie Marathon. This episode is part of a series I made for my main podcast, I Heart Movies, in 2021. I don't have anything new to add to or edit from this one, so I'm going to leave it as is, and we can get right into the episode. Hey everyone, it's Jonathan, and welcome back to the Disney Movie Marathon. Today we're finally getting back into the main Disney canon films, picking up where we left off in the package film era with Make Mine Music. Joining me once more is my cousin Sarah, who usually likes to join me to talk about films with interesting historical relevance, and there was quite a bit of that in this one. So much so that we ended up going on an extra long tangent partway through the podcast. And while it did kind of completely take the focus away from the movie, I still wanted to keep it, so instead of leaving it in, I decided to make it into its own mini-podcast. I'll tell you more about that when we get there, but in the meantime, let's just jump right into our discussion of the third film of the package film era, Disney's eighth animated feature film, if you're not counting victory through air power, 1946's Make Mine Music. Okay, Make Mine Music. It's actually one of five Disney movies that I had never seen. I kind of was sort of planning on just waiting to watch them until I did podcasts on them. I hadn't seen it either. So this is sort of a Fantasia-esque film in that it's all music. Like, the point of this is they wanted to make another musical film, and it's during the wartime. Well, it was released in 46, though, wasn't it? Well, it was made during the made war. Made during the war. They're they're trying to save money, basically. The studio is in kind of dire straits. The war did help with money from the government to make, I guess, propaganda. <laughs> Plus the money from the three caballeros and Saludos Amigos. That helped. But the studio is still not doing amazing. So they're trying to save money by putting together shorts and making feature packages. This is usually called the package film era, or they call it the war era the package film era, and it basically comes in between the first section of Disney's well-known films and the second section of Disney's well-known films. And these are kind of forgotten about, and when you watch them, you kind of can see why. <laughs> <laughs> the I guess they're not amazing. There is There is some stuff in here to like, but I guess, well, we can just get into it and talk about each section individually because there are basically is 10 shorts in here, 10 musical shorts, each with a different featured artist. That you've probably never seen before, like us. <laughs> yeah, and this first, the first section in this film, most people, at least in the U.S., haven't seen because the U.S. video release cut out the first short, which is called The Martins and the Coys, apparently for gun violence, and I guess there was, it was only in the U.S. because other releases around the world had this short still in, so I don't know why I <laughs> don't, the U.S. release. I don't understand, because so many U.S. films are so violent, mm -hmm. and if you think about Snow White with the queen <laughs> falling yeah, over really. the cliff, seeing one guy get shot and bounce down the hill because really you don't see much killing after that. You see a bunch of shooting and see a bunch of ghosts going up to heaven, which are not <laughs> scary ghosts, by the way. I could see it being taken out because it was offensive. The, you know, stereotype and everything, which, yeah. I feel like for me, the most problematic part was the end. <laughs> Oh, for for marital violence, yes. yeah, and yeah. So how do we how do we even want to talk about this? I I don't know. Well, it, it's based off of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Yeah, that whole feud. So the basic rundown of this cartoon is you have a bunch of hillbillies that you know 
the stereotype, the hillbilly, the hillbilly stereotype. And it is said that that stereotype began with the Hatfields and McCoys, which is, an, which is another topic. Because before that, I think maybe they had more the image of a proud mountaineer. And then after all of this violence, they were, you know, reduced to barbarians in the eyes of the public. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a whole thing. Um, so you have these two families on their large hills, um, looking lazy and sleepy, and there's alcohol, and this drunken member of one of the families goes and is taking eggs out of the coop, and they're acting like this is how this feud started. Now, granted, they didn't actually use the straight-up names. It's just implied. You know, because Martins and Coys, like, mm -hmm. it's not it's not like they said, yeah, and Randolph McCoy went over and took some eggs or whatever. And then they, they shoot each other until practically no one is left, and they're up in heaven looking down as one of the, oh, let's see, as Henry Coy and Grace Martin are supposedly going to find each other in the woods and shoot each other. And then he gets a look at her very obviously drawn figure, thank you very much, with the sunlight filtering through her skimpy outfit. And he doesn't want to shoot her anymore. <laughs> this is not historically accurate if you haven't picked up on that yet. <laughs> uh, and and they get married and there's a dance and there's a pig at the dance for some reason. And But then it ends with, you know, this is not where it ends because you have Grace. <laughs> Good old Grace basically is in an all-out brawl with her husband. She's sort of, I don't know, punched him out the door or something. He goes hurrying back in to meet her fist, and then they're just fighting like crazy inside of the house. And the end. And isn't that funny, kids? <laughs> this is a beautiful picture of marriage that we should all aspire to, right? We shouldn't try and respect each other or anything. Just yeah, it was just... It was just... Odd. I... I think it probably was hilarious back then, but... Well, at least the thing for is... some people. I think it's the whole thing of pain breeds comedy. So when people struggle with arguments in their marriage or difficulties or somebody being petty or somebody being lazy, they want to laugh by making jokes about it instead of people actually changing their behavior and respecting each other the way they should. Sometimes they just find release in making jokes about it, but those jokes, I think, can help to cement that the behavior is okay, whether it's being petty or angry or lazy or... Or just violent. Maybe even just violent, and it's... that still doesn't make the behavior okay, you know? I just have a little Dr. Phil moment here or something. Just be nice. Do I'm, unto I'm others. Wondering, I'm wondering if they maybe thought this was more okay and more funny because they never actually showed the husband hitting the wife. I think that would have been more disturbing. But I think the fact that she was the one doing most of the hitting Which... was probably supposed to be more funny. Yes. Like Which, she, not like to he, me, but like, like the, maybe Like there's then. this wild cat who's... Yeah, not being dominated at all, but then of course you have women who actually are violent to their husbands, and if they were watching that cartoon, they would not find that funny. Um, unless they were having some really strange moment of catharsis, I don't know. But that cartoon is way better than the actual story of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Hey everyone, Editor Jonathan here. I just wanted to let you know that if you're interested in learning more about the real story that inspired the events of this short, Sarah and I went on a very long tangent where she filled me in on the entire sordid tale. The Martins and the Coys kind of paints a silly, cleaned up version of what actually happened. I mean, I guess technically the massive quantity of on-screen deaths is more violent than the actual story, but there was still plenty of murder involved in the real story as well. But that feud didn't culminate in a massive hillbilly battle royale to the death like in the cartoon. No, actually, the real story, which surprisingly actually does involve a forbidden romance between two members of the family, 
But it also involves a child born out of that romance and then dying. A stolen pig, families torn apart by the Civil War, property damage, court battles, and, of course, a whole bunch of death and murders. So if that kind of thing sounds interesting to you, I do highly recommend you listen to our conversation. Sarah did a lot of research for it and made the whole story really interesting to listen to. It really helps put the whole thing into perspective, not just the cartoon, but the actual feud itself if you never actually knew the entire story. Anyway, that's all from me for now. That mini-episode will be linked in the description, so make sure you listen to that if you're interested. Okay, back to the movie. One thing that I forgot to mention is, and I don't know how relevant this is to anybody else, but this song in this was done by the Kingsmen, who were apparently a really popular vocal group of the time. I feel like I know that name. I don't recognize it, Maybe I'm just thinking of, like, the King's Trio or something. Anyway. I thought I recognized them, but I looked them up and I was like, I don't recognize any of this, so maybe I'm just mixing them up with some other thing. I don't know. But anyways, I thought I would mention that. Yeah, they do have some really well-known people doing this. If you're familiar with the era, you'll probably have names jumping out at you. The next one is called Blue Bayou, and this was originally a segment that was... It was made for Fantasia, but it was cut from the final film. Um, the original segment had Claire de Lune as the music, and it's nothing really happens. It's just two egrets flying around the Everglades. That's it's it's beautiful and yes. it's it's very Fantasia esque. Like it would fit perfectly in Fantasia because it was made for Fantasia. I have in my notes, lovely. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this, what? this one was performed by the Ken Darby Singers, which is apparently another popular group of the time. And that's sort of like a recurring theme throughout these cartoons. Um, love, romance, mm-hmm. attraction. Um, and this, they paired it with sort of a romantic song, didn't they? Yeah. Whereas Claire de Lune, I feel like they would have purposefully fit that to the song, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really nice. And in a way, I liked it better than what they did with it for this. You like Claire de Lune better yeah. than the Blue Buyer song? Yeah, I just feel like there was so much mush put into this lineup that mm. seeing it with a non-romantic song that they specifically tailored it to, I felt like with Claire de Lune it was a little bit slow, but if yeah. you were trying to just relax, mm-hmm. that that would be a nice pairing along with the song. Yeah, that was my thought too. I felt like the Claire de Lune version was a lot slower than the Blue Bayou I, version. I feel like they almost needed a little bit more going on in the cartoon, mm-hmm. which it was still lovely. But, I don't know, they needed some flowers or an alligator or something. I don't know. <laughs> but it was lovely, just the way it was. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, I think I prefer the Claire de Lune version as well. And if you want more thoughts on the Claire de Lune version, Rachel Wagner and I actually talked about it back when we did the Fantasia episode. We did like a bonus episode of extra Fantasia content. Things that were made for or planned for future Fantasia that never happened, and this was part of it because it was cut from a Fantasia film. So if you want to check out that episode, you'll have more thoughts on the Claire de Lune version. So how old do you think the cartoon itself was when they pieced it into? Well, probably at least six years, but I'm going to guess older than that. Which to to me makes it even more interesting, I think. Yeah. I'm glad that they were able to make something with it. And actually have people see it. Yeah. But I do prefer it as a standalone, just with Claire de Lune. Just because I really like Fantasia and that it feels so very Fantasia. Just the art style and music. I just, I really liked it. And why did they line it up the way they did to have this really soothing thing right after this? I don't know. That's that's one of my main criticisms about this movie is how disjointed it is. It's like super random. You've got this one thing with like Looney Tunes levels of gun violence and then you've got this nice, quiet, soft blue bayou and then you jump to a jazz number and then there's a more quiet, soft Well, you're already like showing a pattern of 
loud, soft, loud, soft. But yeah, are they just trying to appeal to different people in the audience, maybe? Maybe. But I feel like they could have done a better job of tying it together. I mean, they're tying it together with the theme of music. Like, it's all music of the time. But... And the Blue Bayou, they were doing a more modern, secular theme with the music, I think. Maybe that's not the right way to put it, but it was not like classical, classical, jazz, classical, classical. Yeah. So, so to have that pairing, I can understand more why they did that. But yeah, maybe watch both. Yeah. This one is really, I don't know, I love birds. <laughs> it's very pretty. Yeah. And then, like we said, the next number is a jazz number called All the Cats Join In. This one is by Benny Goodman and his orchestra. And if you don't know that name, like, you're not into the four. <laughs> like, you can't... <laughs> uh, yeah, you don't have to love Benny Goodman, but it, he's huge, huge name in Americana, jazz, 1940s. Yes. The man with the glasses and the clarinet. <laughs> Little do I realize I'm talking about somebody else, but no, that is totally, yeah, that's totally him. Which there's so many other famous band leaders that sort of, I don't know, get lost in in history and you end up making discoveries, but he would be one of the first ones that you learn about, probably, unless you're starting from beginning of American music history or something. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I guess it's just portraying teens of the time, like doing teen things <laughs> oh okay this this was a pro and con cartoon yeah for me totally because i partly liked the artistic style like the way they did the eyes and it's just mm. very 40s but mm, where do i go with this um <laughs> you remember when we had our whole ramble about that guy who did the studio tour and he was just kind of a creeper yeah this gave this has a little bit of that because i feel like they purposefully wanted to illustrate a bathing scene with a teenage girl and maybe mm. i'm overthinking that but i feel like the allure of the feminine figure was over effort like they I want to I want to draw this you know and well, there was a little bit in the Martins and the Coys too probably by the same people mm-hmm like there were some wolves at the studio mm. <laughs> and <laughs> and a lot of people aren't gonna care but I didn't appreciate it I felt like they overemphasized it I I can understand more if you know, like it would seem more normal, like they weren't trying to do anything if she's just like in there sudsing up and then she's hopping out the door or whatever, but they just... They lingered like a split second longer than they needed to. More than a split second. <laughs> like she's dancing around with towel that's not fully covering her and just different, you know, it's like you're trying to make this look cute and jazzy. It's like, I have your number. You're not fooling me. <laughs> Anyway, she's the her boyfriend or whoever wants her to come down to the the malt shop and they're picking up all their friends and you had a part where you just burst out laughing because you have all these people in the car and all of a sudden they slow way down because there's a cop and then they're speeding <laughs> up again. It really is, you know, shower aside, it's a good picture into a slight tiny pinhole picture into youth culture of the 1940s, having a good time, friends mm -hmm. getting together to dance and eat gigantic ice creams and whatnot at the malt shop. And it's a good, I mean, aside from one of them throwing one of the guys around, which is probably not too accurate, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fairly good cartoon portrayal of swing dancing. Mm -hmm. It's just supposed to be fun. I really, I also did not appreciate, here's another thing. I bet it's going to be the one thing I wrote down too. <laughs> the one where she was drawn wrong? The eraser scene. <laughs> yes. They, I'm glad you're, I'm glad that you're not happy with that either. What did you, what did you put? Because I want to know. I just wrote eraser with a little face. 
<laughs> so you have this young man. The girl is drawn wrong, and her 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 bottom is disproportionate. Which, may I point out, some men would be very happy that her bottom was disproportionate. I'm not sure if that's inappropriate to say or not, but you know, you get all types. But you have this, uh, you have this teenage boy with this girl. Her her. Her bum's too big, okay, for for the top half of her body. But it's not like she's ugly or anything. Mm-hmm. It's just like she's supposedly been drawn wrong. And he's over there yawning. And then she points out to the artist or whatever that her bum is wrong, and he redraws her, and then all of a sudden the teenage boy is interested because that's how you build proper relationships. It is about how um, lustworthy your figure is, not about who you are on the inside, right? Right. <laughs> Let's teach that to the young people. But what gets me too is <laughs> this is oh maybe I shouldn't be so mad about that. <laughs> but it was just so obviously all about her body. Mm-hmm. And I don't appreciate that. And what's kind of funny is in these cartoons when they are illustrating middle-aged older people, all those rules go out the window. <laughs> like, I don't know what size all of these people are, but it's like you have this tiny, tiny window of youth where you're supposed to be absolutely perfect, and after that, meh. <laughs> That is true. That's an aspect of it I didn't even think about. Because you remember, like with the with the one with the operatic whale, uh-huh. the women in the audience—they're yeah. not little stick figures. No. And and the professor on there—it's not a little stick figure. So it's it's interesting. People are interesting. Just everybody, take care of yourselves and be kind to others. <laughs> Your PSA. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, the shallowness of youth culture. Also another shallow thing, but also historically interesting that I picked up on was they're all jiving in their malt shop and you have this guy in a red and white striped jacket singing and playing the ukulele and he is shown the door. When you see this, recognize that they're basically kicking what would be what would have been typical in their parents generation in the 1920s out like the the ukulele era would have been basically the height would have probably been the 20s i think that that is totally a 20s stereotype mm-hmm. and it probably wasn't jiving enough for them and yeah so that's interesting to it'd be like teens today thinking that music from the 90s is too old fashioned Wow. (laughs) Which to me, like the sound, I don't know. I guess it would depend on what genre you were comparing to what. Probably just regular pop music. Which like, how much is that? I guess if you had like the little um, record sound, that little, uh, oh, what do you call that? Record scratch? Probably. From the from the nineties, and it's like, oh, that's not cool anymore. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. I don't know what the the best comparison would I be. I don't know because honestly, even between the twenties and the forties, this is another thing. So much music from the twenties kept getting recycled into further decades, and maybe they would jive it up more, but it was still totally relevant to them. So, mm-hmm. Well, it, I think the same thing still happens today. It just changes a little bit with each decade. So I think maybe the gentler ukulele strumming just wasn't... It wasn't jivey enough. <laughs> it wasn't jiving enough. Not for these cool cats. <sighs> and we all grow old and are not cool anymore. Unless some old soul thinks that we're cool. Maybe. I don't know that I was ever cool, so I don't really care. <laughs> I like old things anyway. I like the era of this shallow, these shallow young people. <laughs> and shallowness doesn't ever go away. It just yeah, looks different in different just, eras. Yeah, that is so, so true. 
Wow. We're giving you so much truth today. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. That's about all we can say about that one. I mean, there's probably more that could be said, but... The next segment is called Without You, sung by Andy Russell. And I don't really have a whole lot to say about this one because I don't remember it a whole lot. It was very boring. <laughs> it was nice looking. There wasn't really a narrative, I don't think. There were trees or water effects. I don't remember. It starts out in a blue room and then goes out into nature and then comes back into the blue room and ends. That, that it, it was. It's, it's basically one of those songs of just like, I miss you so much. I want you back. My life is nothing without you. One of the things that I thought was nice, well, and it was sort of a tropical type rhythm. It was sort of a, I don't know if it had a somber rhythm or, or it had some kind of sort of exotic sounding beat to it. But there was a line in there where he's talking about my heart kneels to pray. Yeah, when his heart kneels to pray, he, he prays about her, which I thought was kind of nice. <laughs> but, but it was, oh, it's the classic needy love song, just not as needy as we tend to sound today in our love songs. <laughs> but yeah, not not a lot to say there. I suppose if you were in, if somebody in the audience was feeling sad and lonely, that they might have gotten swept up into it. But it wasn't, it was not that eventful. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like this would have been more in place instead of out of place if you were paring it down to the slower songs and made a movie with the slower songs because it feels I don't it, I guess it adds to the disjointedness because it comes after all the cats join in and then it's before another frantic cartoon well in this song too like the illustration it was like the cartoon itself was naturey enough that mm -hmm. if they had paired it with a song about the night or the stars or I don't know a night in spring or something mm -hmm. then it would have been nicer to engage with it that way rather yeah. than just a random cartoon with a love song paired to it which sort of made sense but yeah too much mush in this lineup and then the next one we get is Casey at the Bat which oh. is it's more of a poetry recitation because it is a poem. Apparently Ernest Thayer is the author. I'd heard of this poem. I knew it was a thing. I probably like the poem better than if I was just if I was just reading it. Yes, because I, I mean, I don't know the poem, but I recognize different segments of it. And it seems a lot quieter and more thoughtful than this cartoon was. <laughs> Oh, now I kind of want to read the poem. Yeah, it's basically, the poem is about baseball, and it's talking about Casey at the bat, and it's about how his arrogance Bis ruins the game, I guess. Too big for his britches. Yeah, so this is like Looney Tunes level ridiculousness. There was just so much, not even Looney Tunes, because Looney Tunes was funny. This wasn't even funny, I didn't think. This, I liked the way it started. And maybe ended because you remember it started out with these really artistic that is true. I vignettes forgot that part. of like the early 1900s. It was actually nice mm -hmm. art that they were sort of, it was almost like pages that they were putting and taking away or something. Yeah. And it was really nice. And I think they had some nice music at the beginning. And then they move over to Looney Tunes esque cartoon figures that are being absolutely obnoxious mm -hmm. and I'm like if I understood baseball I don't know if I would have found it funnier then I either. mean I I know most of it I, I mean I don't know baseball but like I was in little league so I know how the game works and that didn't help me find this funnier <laughs> okay right um there was at least one point where I think I did laugh out loud I did get the cultural reference because when he said he was the Sinatra of 1902 because you had all these girls that were absolutely crazy about him and Frank Sinatra, women 
young girls, women, whatever, were absolutely crazy about him, whether they should have been or not. But yeah, anyway. That was another thing that I thought was weird, both about this and the hillbillies. They acted like this Casey, as well as the, I don't remember his name, Henry or whatever, the the, the, the main hillbilly. <laughs> I think his name was Henry. Married. They acted like they were supposed to be these hunks, and I thought they were ridiculous looking. Well, they made them burly and muscular, but they didn't give them handsome faces. No, they were just like bulbous cartoon faces. Which, I don't know how much they tried to make him seem like a total hunk in the feud one. I don't think that that was necessary for that cartoon. It was just that, I mean... I feel like there was a line about him, not like they didn't say, like, he's hot, but like... <laughs> like that was implied. Some, something like, I, I don't know, I felt like it was implied that he was supposed to be really good looking. And I thought he was ugly. <laughs> Same with Casey. Um, they did kind of do a nice job with the young ladies' costumes, their outfits for the Casey. Like, you had this scene with all these little hats. Mm -hmm. And, like, I, I, take the positives. This scra we're scraping for positives here. <laughs> um, another historically interesting thing... Remember when they were getting mad at the umpire for striking, for saying strike mm -hmm. when he was missing the ball? At one point, one of the young ladies was like, kill the umpire. And it's like she's starting to get out of the stands or something, or at least leaning over. Mm -hmm. And she has a giant hat pin in her hand. What does this mean, folks? It means back in that day, women wore giant hat pins and sometimes they used them as weapons. <laughs> and this is true. I am not making this up. I am not guessing. This is not an appropriate application of that as a weapon. <laughs> and it, they were just, I don't know, exaggerating. They did not show her stabbing anybody with this. <laughs> but, you know, women didn't always... Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, because you were the one who got me onto this. Women didn't always have as much protection or supervision during this era, and this was one of the ways that they could actually protect themselves, because hat pins could be huge. Like, they could be, I don't know, maybe six inches long. And if they had somebody who was trying to um, harass them, shall we say, or, or be mean to them in any way, they could stab them, and they would stab them probably about anywhere they wanted to. And I, I don't know that it was always used appropriately, but I think in general it was because they needed to. <laughs> but this is just a really hammy indication of that. So if you do watch that, just pointing out a little historical nugget for you to pick up on. Mm -hmm. well, with that, I've only read about hat pins being used as self-defense weapons. I've never actually seen a depiction of a hat pin being brandished threateningly so that was kind of interesting to see here and, and think about it this way too if they're talking about he was the sinatra of 1902 if this is 1946 that's about 25 years prior that's like us looking back at the mid-1970s so it's far enough back but it's close enough so there would still be plenty of people who knew what was happening what happens uh, yeah <laughs> anyway and yeah, it was not, it wasn't really a funny cartoon. It wasn't that entertaining. There were faces that people were making that could probably weird out little children. There was one point where the umpire was signaling to the, what's that guy? The pitcher? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there was one point where the umpire was signaling to the pitcher and his fingers literally went into a braid with a ribbon at the end. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's that's weird. Yeah. Um, but there were there was a lot of weirdness with these baseball players. Like the faces they were making. I think it was supposed to be funny, but it was just like ghoulish. <laughs> so, yeah, not not a highly recommended cartoon. Maybe somebody with a different sense of humor from me would find it hilarious or maybe it was just hilarious during that time period because different decades have their own brands of humor which can yeah 
humor is individual. Yeah. So maybe you would find this funny. I didn't really find it funny. Neither did I. Next segment is two silhouettes and Dinah Shore sang the, the song. This She's one, famous. <laughs> this one was two rotoscoped ballet dancers. So they filmed ballet dancers dancing and then drew over them as silhouettes. I probably should have looked up who they were because they listed them at the beginning and you gotta wonder how famous were they, but I don't know. Well, the names they have on here, because I've got the Wikipedia page open, just as a reminder, is David Lachine, L-I-C-H-I-N-E, and Tanya Ryabuchinskaya, R-I-A-B-O-U-C-H-I-N-S-K-A-Y-A. Maybe you'd have to know ballet. I don't know. Or maybe you'd have no Russian to be able to figure out how to pronounce that. Little do we realize they were just being fair in crediting them, even though nobody knew who they were. <laughs> I don't. Well, their names are clickable links on Wikipedia. I can click them and see what happens. He was a Russian-American ballet dancer and choreographer. He had an international career as a performer, ballet master, and choreographer, staging works for many ballet companies and several Hollywood films. And she was a Russian-American prima ballerina and teacher. She was famous at age 14 as one of three baby ballerinas of the Ballet Russe di Monte Carlo in 1930. And she matured into an artist whom critics called the most unusual dancer of her generation. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not without going down and reading her entire career. Now I kind of want to look her up and see what's so <laughs> unusual. So there you go, famous people that I didn't recognize, but if you were into ballet and know your ballet history, then you might recognize these people if you were to watch this random cartoon. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to talk about with this. There wasn't anything narratively here. It was just the dancers. There were some cherubs for some reason. <laughs> I mean, the the animation was really nice. It was very Fantasia-esque. There was a lot of clouds and... It's more like just sit back, eat your popcorn, and chill. Yeah. There were fountains, trees. It was just chill. That's uh, yeah. the best way to describe it, is chill. It's more mush. My favorite part was that it looked like they were dancing through nebulas at one point. <laughs> I love those nebulas. <laughs> <laughs> then we get... Probably the segment that I am most familiar with, because this was taken out of this film and put into a VHS we had when I was a kid, Peter and the Wolf. Which I don't think I grew up watching this at all. I don't know if I watched this once. We, I don't know where we got it, because it's not like our parents didn't buy us movies. I think somebody just gave us this tape at some point. It was Peter and the Wolf and some other Disney shorts that were music related. The main one I remember is like the music war. I don't remember what it's called with the cellos, and the, the violins or no tubas and violins fighting. I don't know. That was the, the other big one that I remember from that tape. Mm. Anyway, this is Peter and the Wolf. And this is probably like the most famous story that they've used here, too, because Peter and the Wolf is one of those things that I think has been adapted in other versions. I don't know, it's about a kid who wants to go hunting a wolf, and there's a bird and a cat and a duck that go with him. Which, when I looked it up, I was surprised because it was only about 10 years old. Like, I think it might have been actually made in 1936, written in 1936. Hmm. So it's not like they were taking a folktale from the 1700s and adapting it. Maybe somebody was, but... Yeah, I guess I didn't realize it was that new of a piece. And maybe that's why the tale itself isn't that dark, because if it was old, it would probably be darker. The little <laughs> boy true. probably would have learned his lesson by being eaten uh -huh. and listen to your grandfather and don't go hunting wolves when you're not prepared. Um, but they actually were fairly true to the story. They left out the part about the boy wanting the wolf to be in a zoo. And the duck does actually die in the story. But they've had the duck live and they didn't explain about the zoo. But the wolf is caught in similar fashion to the story. Mm -hmm. The original story. The narration was done here by Sterling Holloway, which 
I'm kind of of two minds. Having watched it as a kid and watching it now, I feel like like I liked it as a kid, so I like Sterling Holloway here. But thinking about the different pieces here and how this movie could be improved, I think this could be improved by no narration. Really? I think I would like this a lot better if there were no narration at all. That's an interesting perspective. I thought maybe you would want more dramatic narration. I mean, that might help a little, but I still think I would like it with no narration, just the musical instruments, because it's it's one of those things, it's like Fantasia, like certain songs, they had like ideas for what the story would be that were played out through the instruments. And this is that, but even more specific, because every character, like they said in their narration, every character is given a specific instrument. And they could have explained that at the beginning, but then just let the story tell itself. Because yeah. really, when I think about it, you don't need a narrator for this. It's mm -hmm. fairly self-explanatory. And a lot of what he says, it sounds like it's for the children who are watching. Like, Perhaps very little children, too. Yeah. Because if you're, I don't know... You probably have to be pretty little, like really little, to not get what's happening. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you had the grandpa, you know, wagging his finger or something and the little boy going out anyway, mm -hmm. you know, you can... Part of me kind of wonders if this was originally intended to not have narration. Because so much of what they're doing is very expressive, like the facial expressions and the wagging of the finger... It's like everything is told through the visuals. So I'm wondering if the narration was kind of an afterthought. I don't, I don't know. know. Jinx. <laughs> um, I, I do want to say a word for the wolves because they made this wolf so ugly and evil looking. It was... Yeah, I mean... The birds were wearing hats. I guess I, there's only so much I can throw. But they, but they just exaggerated so much. And in the end, the wolf was powerless. So, yeah, really. The, the wolf had so many opportunities to eat all of them. And he was just so slow. And in real life, he probably would have been ripping that duck apart while the little boy was trying to run off, crying, home. <laughs> You know, if he wasn't eating the boy first, because frankly, the boy had more meat on him. But the duck might have worked. Um, no, this is definitely not an old, old school fairy tale, because the fairy tale would have taught you that little boys do not go hunting wolves. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, that is true. They really should have had the grandpa rescue him out of that tree. <laughs> yeah. No, the fact that... I, like, I didn't remember how the, the thing ended, so I was kind of surprised that they had Peter actually win in the end, like, catching the wolf. I, I thought that he was going to have to be rescued by those hunters. Reality is, wolves are sometimes creepy-looking, sometimes beautiful... You know, they can be scabby looking. They can also be majestic, but they're valuable creatures. They're beautiful creatures and they're powerful creatures that need to be respected. So don't take life lessons from Peter and the wolf. <laughs> don't go try and live with wolves, okay? Somebody out there may be getting ideas. Just don't do it. Don't be like those people. <laughs> I'm going to go live with bears, and I'm going to go live with wolves. What could go wrong? We're going to fight for the food. I'm thinking about this one guy who, first I thought he was actually out living with wolves, but I think he was just getting into an enclosure with them, and people who manage, the wolf, who manage wolves weren't too happy with what he was portraying, but he would, like, bare his teeth and try and, get, and be in the pecking order for the food, and I don't know whether he's still living or not. <laughs> He probably is. And he just, he wanted to act like a wolf. And you're just, people who want to get too cuddly with apex predators are asking for trouble. Sometimes it looks cool. And then you hear about somebody getting eaten and that's not so cool anymore. Mm -hmm. So try and rein in your wildlife expectations. You know, work at a zoo or something. Practice safety <laughs> measures. These are lessons 
not learned from Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but they're, the way they did the house and the the posts and, you know, with the, the colorful paint, I mean, that was kind of cute and pretty. I don't know what the people of the original region would have to say about it, but <laughs> it, it was pretty. It was cute. Yeah. I guess that's one of my top positives. <laughs> Does it have, like, lasting value to you with the nostalgia factor, or what do you think of it now? I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I I like it as maybe a little bit of nostalgia, but I see a lot of flaws in it now. Not enough to ruin it, but enough for me to be like, this could have been a little better. Mm. Okay. The next one is called After You've Gone... And it once again features Benny Goodman and his orchestra, the Goodman Quartet. I think they're credited in this one. This one was kind of weird, but creative. This one m makes sense. This one is sort of like Fantasia, but jazz. Because you have all of these sort of anthropomorphic instruments doing stuff. Yeah, I guess the thing that struck me as weird was the fingers in skirts running around on a piano. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, let me look at my notes. Yeah, I have in my notes, weird dancing hands. <laughs> it starts out with just like disembodied hands, but then you have these like painted nails, like two fingers... With a skirt at the top, and they're playing the piano, but they're also, like, dancing legs. And, like, I don't think that they were trying to be dirty, but it's almost it's almost like legs without pants with a skirt on top. And it's, but it's like, but these are just fingers, but they're legs. And it's sort of this confusing thing in your brain of, like, well, this probably isn't inappropriate. <laughs> I didn't think of it in that way. I just thought it was weird looking. <laughs> it was creative. We'll give it that. And not and not overtly inappropriate. It was just kind of... It was different. Yes. And that's weird. only part of it. But like the, the instruments dancing around doing stuff that... Mm -hmm. That actually fit more as entertainment mm -hmm. than than just a random cartoon with a love song. Yeah, this is one of the ones where I feel like if it's paired with the right shorts, like pull out some of these shorts and they could be a Fantasia-esque film on their own. Like if you want to do a jazz Fantasia, this would be perfect. It would make sense. Yeah. Um, this is another, this is a good example of a recycled song because After You Have Gone was originally put out in 1918. Marion Harris sang this song who knows how many people sang it after her and she was the first widely known white jazz singer so contrast benny goodman in the cartoon with all of the teenagers escorting ukulele boy out the door and here <laughs> we have a faster paced even jazzier version of this jazz song in the 40s that originally came out in 1918, probably before World War One ended. So hmm. I'd have to look up exact dates. I think it was released July 22nd, so I would have to look up how that coincides with the war. But just know that's that era. And that's one of the most interesting things that I can say about this cartoon. It's just it's 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 whimsical. It's a little weird and it's very jazzy. So Decide whether you're curious about that or not. <laughs> Strange finger legs. <laughs> then we get the, another one that is weird, but I kind of, I liked how weird it was. This is one of the best ones yes. in the lineup. This one you could actually show to kids mm -hmm. and entertain them with it and it would be okay. Yeah. I knew sort of what this was about. I knew it was about hats falling in love but I had no idea where the story was going to go, and it ended up really surprising me by the end. It was cute. Yeah, you've got a fedora, Johnny Fedora. The short is called Johnny Fedora and Alice Bluebonnet, and you've got Johnny Fedora, who is a fedora, and Alice Bluebonnet, who is, is a bluebonnet a hat, or is there a specific name for the type of hat she was? Um, 
they're just referencing that it's a bonnet. Yeah, so it's she, early enough that you know it's a it's a little blue hat with flowers on it, and she has these red lips that are holding one of the the flowers, mm-hmm. like probably a rose in in her mouth, and it's it's very cute. Mm-hmm. So they live in a store department window, and they're in love. But Alice gets sold, and Johnny is devoted to finding her. Johnny like. He gets bought later, but like he, it's his life's mission to find her again. He eventually loses the guy that bought him. He ends up like... Because he was trying to get to her because he, I think, spotted her in a crowd and flies off of the guy's head and he doesn't get his hat back and then he gets picked up by a hobo and, <laughs> and he ends up in a bar and it's a total mess. Like, this gets dark yeah. for Johnny Fedora. It's, it's, it's like a combination of... Um, oh, what am I thinking of? Evangeline, and oh, what am I thinking of? That one horse book. I've got to think of this. This is going to bug me now. It's not National Velvet. It's not The Black Stallion. It's, what's the other horse book? The really sad one. Black Beauty? Yes. This is like a combination of Evangeline and Black Beauty. It has lacings, only it's cute and fluffier than that. (laughs) But if you think about it, yeah, don't think about that too deeply. <laughs> That's me. That's making like obscure references or something. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, the middle of this. Uh, my my note for the middle of this cartoon was just sudden violence. <laughs> like fighting in the bar, and where does he end up after the hobo? Uh, I don't know if there's anything after the bar violence because then you get the surprise ending. Doesn't he end up on? kind of on the docks or something and I don't know he was fighting the gutter fighting going down the gutter and eventually he's picked up by somebody who cuts holes in him (laughs) he ends up as a hat for a horse because like they cut holes for the horse's ears and it turns out the horse next to this horse is wearing Alice Blue Bonnet. Yeah, he didn't mind because Alice Blue Bonnet was right next to him. So they managed to make this a surprise ending. Yeah. And then they just lived happily for a long time, I think is what they sang, <laughs> which is more realistic. <laughs> uh, it shows them on the horse's heads. Yeah. So it was cute. It was kind of drawn out like this. these hat, hat trials were just going on and on, but... The, the one thing that stood out to me was this reminded me of the Pixar short with the umbrellas. I can't think of the name of it right now, but it, the two umbrellas. Did you ever see that with the red umbrella red umbrella and the blue umbrella that were in love? I don't And they think get separated so. and they have to find each other. This reminded me of a couple other old cartoons, like the one with Susie the car and the one with the, the old house that's dealing with all the changes around it. I feel like this would group well into that category but you hadn't seen those ones but they're these things getting older and going through trials and and uh, different owners and so it I feel like it's in a similar vein but they did actually manage to make it surprising Mm -hmm. and it was cute and sweet but no I don't think I've seen that short (laughs) I can't remember which movie it was attached to Mm. Anyways, one thing we didn't mention was the Andrews sisters were the vocals on this one. They basically sang the whole story. It was really good. I liked, this is their, I liked it. This is their heyday. The 40s are the Andrews sisters' heyday. If you don't know who they are, my goodness. Are you living under a 2020 rock? I feel like any even if people aren't familiar with the music of that era, they still know the name. Okay, the okay, because I don't know where people... Because of my perspective, I don't necessarily know who all knows about the Andrews sisters and who doesn't. You know, are, are they the ones who did Sandman? No, that was the Cordettes. Okay, and that's there like was... ten years later. <laughs> I feel like there was a song that the Andrews sisters did that was like really popular recently, little, like people making remixes. Little do I realize they were the originals, which they were actually inspired by, I believe, the Boswell sisters. You know, they weren't the first female group, and their names were Laverne, Patty, and Maxine. Patty was the youngest, and she was the the lead singer. And the wartime was really their heyday. They sang songs like 
Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy and Oh Johnny. And they did a remake of probably a 1918 song called Apple Blossom Time and, and changed the tempo on it. And that was very, very, it was like tearjerker with the troops because it's talking about getting married in the springtime. It's like, yeah, they, they did the song. Um, well, I think they did a version of a Tisket a Tasket and rum and coca-cola and round her neck she wore a yellow ribbon they just yeah the wartime was their time and they they would pair up with bing crosby who of course was huge it's very popular for for decades but the wartime was definitely one of one of his peak times so very very important even if a person doesn't listen to their music they are very historically important for that era they would have influenced troops and encouraged troops and yeah. Patty had so much energy. She's one of those people where it's just radiating out of her as she was entertaining. You know, they did movies and mm -hmm. Yeah. I think their music is still used in movies today. I think that's one reason why they're they've kind of lived on, like people still know who they are. I can tell you one in oh The Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe. The Narnia movie, they mm -hmm. they used Oh Johnny. So, but that's set during the war, so that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it, that's one of the most significant things about this cartoon is that they sang in it. So, mm -hmm. but it's cute, even if you don't know who they are. Yeah. Then we come to the finale The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met. Whale of a finale. <laughs> what a messed up cartoon, man. <laughs> messed up they tell you at the beginning that it's a tragedy so which apparently i didn't retain <laughs> because i thought this was maybe gonna have a happy ending happy-ish i was being too you get this whale his mouth isn't even in the right place and he's and he's having fantasies about singing opera and i expect it to have a realistic ending like <laughs> where was i i okay anyway i mean Opera stuff aside, sadly, it did kind of have a realistic ending for whales. We'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this is about a whale who can sing opera and all these sailors are telling stories and news get around that there's people have been seeing this opera singing whale. And for some reason, this opera theater manager named Teti Tati believes that this whale is not singing opera. He has apparently thinks he swallowed an opera singer. So he goes out to rescue the opera singer with a harpoon. And Part of what makes this so entertaining is that you have Nelson Eddy doing all of mm -hmm. the voices, no matter how ridiculous it gets. And if you listen to the War of the Worlds podcast that Jonathan and I did, which if you haven't, you should... <laughs> Then you'll hear my big ramble about Nelson Eddy, which, yeah, I don't know how much time that took. <laughs> Just realize Nelson Eddy was a big deal. At one point, he was the highest paid um, opera singer, pro well, probably just singer in the world. He was a big deal. So when you're watching this, you're, you're listening to a very famous singer and entertainer. And that in itself is historically interesting. But he also did a really good job. Mm -hmm. And he was good at being hammy. Mm -hmm. Like when he was doing that female opera singer. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually entertaining. Yeah. And the thing with the three uvulas is kind of weird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he has three voices because he has three uvulas. Because that makes total sense. <laughs> um, but... It was pretty. <laughs> yeah, you, the, the singing is beautiful. Yeah, because Tati Tati goes out to hunt him, but he's he thinks it's an audition. So he's swimming around the boat singing, and then he's got all these fantasies about all the shows he's going to put on. And that's like the bulk of the middle of the cartoon is we, we, seeing the whale doing all these famous operas. We've got to back up because it was a bird. He has a bird friend yeah. who comes and tells him. And as he's coming up to him, he's singing short and bread, <laughs> which was cute. And then as he's 
going off to audition, quote unquote. They're talking about how, oh, what, that he's been, after all these years of casting, casting his shortened bread on the water. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's singing something like, goodbye, my friends, I'm off to be discovered. And it was just funny. <laughs> like, I need to sing that someday when I'm leaving the house. <laughs> but no, yeah, the bulk of the cartoon is him in these different costumes singing these different operatic roles and it's it's hammy and kind of cute especially i'm not like super familiar with a lot of operas but i recognize that he was actually doing real operas like he's wearing the costumes right so for people who are fans of opera this is probably really funny and when he had the the flames and you have the guy with the fire hose quaking on the side <laughs> and and when he had um, was crying and had the water coming out i think you had the orchestra and raincoats and <laughs> it just these different oh and then didn't the ladies have their programs on their heads because the seagulls were <laughs> overhead and just a, different cute details so mm-hmm. a lot of the cartoon is cute and entertaining but then you get to the end and you realize all of this was fantasy because he's still out on the water and Tati Tati harpoons him <laughs> and he dies. Which is not accurate. I just want to take a moment to talk about how horrible <laughs> reality is because I don't know if they ever killed a whale with the first harpoon. They would go out and keep injuring the whale until the whale bled out and Mm. oh probably even drowned in their own blood who knows it just it was really really gory so when my technical historical the history crept into my brain and i thought okay he's harpooned he's just injured and he's run off and it'll it'll be okay but they decided in their cartoon minds that this one harpoon was going to be enough to send him off to some strange whale heaven <laughs> where he has a pink body and jadeite colored wings. And yeah. he sings opera for eternity. Right. I think that they imagined that this was supposed to be a happy ending. <laughs> Maybe sort of like a bittersweet ending. It was like, what did they say? That people didn't understand greatness or difference or something. It was like like humanity didn't understand. Yeah. And so now the whale is dead. Which, yeah. So if you like that kind of plot line, <laughs> I think aside from the ending, it's a pretty cute, cute cartoon. Yeah. Aside, I did enjoy this one, especially all the scenes of the in the opera, the the fantasy scenes. Plus, I mean, Nelson Eddy is a good singer, so I did enjoy all of his singing in this. Sure. But it is kind of a bummer of an ending. <laughs> Even though I I think that they were trying to go realistic by having a him be hunted to death. Even though the one harpoon is not realistic. But it's like, why are you going for realism when you have an opera singing whale? I think probably because most, or not, I don't know, maybe not most, but like a lot of operas are known for being tragic. So they were trying to think of a tragic ending. And what's more tragic and realistic for a whale than to be harpooned to death? So so this wasn't some sort of strange apology for over-harvesting of whale flesh or... Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Or whale products, I should say. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know their whole thought process. I'm just kind of speculating. Tell us, what were you thinking? (laughs) Yeah, I, okay. So, decide whether that's for you or not, but it has its its good side and its bad side. Yeah, that's pretty much (laughs) this whole movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how much of this I would ever revisit. I could see if I wanted to relax to the Claire de Lune version of that one mm-hmm. cartoon. But you can find that on YouTube by itself. So. And the hat one is cute, but it's not like... I don't know how much I would seek it out unless I was trying to entertain children with something clean and nice. Um, definitely not the baseball one. 
yeah, most most of these just aren't really ones that I would mm -hmm. purposefully revisit unless I needed something historical or something out of them. Yeah, I guess I find the this inter the whole thing is interesting from a from a historical perspective. But not but, not nearly as interesting as like the South American ones that we were watching. Yeah, no. Plus those. I feel like they were a more cohesive package. Sure. Like I said earlier, this is just all over the place tonally. Like they're just trying to get by, and yeah. that's coming through. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's that's the best way to look like, at it. Like we have okay, let's go out to the cupboard. We have a can of tomatoes. We have some lentils, some bow tie pasta, and chickpeas. Let's just throw them all together. They're sort of. They're sort of. Good enough to go together, not really, but we'll make it work. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the, this. In the, in the, yeah, <laughs> it's it has some good ingredients, some not so good ingredients. As a whole, it doesn't really work, but it's not completely unenjoyable. Yeah, yeah, there you go, and that's about all. <laughs> all right, yeah, I think that's going to be all for this episode. Um, we're going to try and knock out all of these package films in a row. What's so, next? What racially questionable things can we talk to you about next? Next one, well, there's a little issue with the next one, but half of it I know you'd like. Fun and Fancy Free, which is half Mickey and the Beanstalk and half Bongo the Bear. So I know you're familiar with Mickey and the Beanstalk. So is it going to have racy and racially questionable things thrown I in? I think the the questionable things, if I remember correctly, have more to do with sexism than racism. <laughs> because I think this is the one where there's this supposedly love song where they say, say it with a slap and the bears are slapping each other. I feel like I've seen that. <laughs> I think I think we watched it years ago. I doubt that's going to bother me. Maybe I would have it. Maybe I watched it as a child and would have a totally different perspective now, but I highly doubt that's going to bother me. Okay, well, we'll I'm, see. I don't think I don't, remember I don't think that I'm. It. If it's the way that I remember it being, I don't think it's going to come off as marital violence. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's just, probably I, not going to be as as egregious as the, the I, hillbillies I punching each other. It's probably just going to come off as silly. Yeah, probably. We'll see. I don't remember. But Mickey and the Beanstalk is that has nostalgia factor for me. Mm -hmm. We still quote that in my house. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that will be next time. So we'll see you then. Bye. Thanks to Sarah for joining me for this episode. She'll be back next time for the next episode in our package film series when we'll be looking at fun and fancy free. And like I said earlier, make sure to listen to that bonus mini-podcast where Sarah and I will be talking about the real-life events that inspired the short The Martins and the Coys. And if you want even more interesting history discussion from us right now, like Sarah said earlier in the episode, we did an episode over on Every Virgin Ever last year talking about the original 1938 radio broadcast of War of the Worlds. Part of that discussion revolved around Nelson Eddy, who was the voice of Willie, the whale who wanted to sing at the Met. If you're interested in either of those, I'll have them linked in the description. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Disney Movie Marathon.